0: The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in August 2007.
1: Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway.
0: And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing.
1: Today we welcome the Tony Award-winning actress, Deborah Monk. Hi, Deborah. Hi. Let me just run through a couple of your credits for our radio listeners. You did win the Tony Award in 1993 as Best Featured Actress in a Play for Lanford Wilson's Redwood Curtain, a Drama Desk Award in 2007 for Outstanding Featured Actress in a Musical for the role you're currently playing uh, Carmen Bernstein in Curtains. You also received Tony nominations for Curtains for that role for Steel Pier in 1997, Picnic in 1994, and a show which you had a hand in creating and writing, Pump Boys and Dinettes, was nominated as Best Musical back in 1982. Other credits on Broadway include Chicago, Reckless, Thou Shalt Not, Ah, Wilderness, Revival of Company, uh, Nick and Nora, Prelude to a Kiss, Off-Broadway, The Seagull, Assassins, Oil City Symphony, of which you were a co-author and uh, won a Drama Desk Award for that. Television viewers knew you as Katie Sipowitz on NYPD Blue, for which you won the Emmy, and most recently as George's mother on Grey's Anatomy. Pretty varied uh, resume yeah, there. it is pretty varied. <laughs> and you have a really terrific role now as Carmen Bernstein, who has been described more than once as a tough-as-nails uh, Broadway producer.
2: Yes, she's a wonderful, wonderful character, who I think is driven by her passion, not the fact that she's just... Uh, a manipulative tough woman but she really is uh, guided and and fueled by her desire to do this show but I'm not going to tell you why because I'm not going to give away any of the mystery so you'll have to come see it (laughs) but uh, I think she's just a real theater animal too I think she really lives, breathes the theater loves it loves it Um, But she has uh, her ulterior motives as well.
1: Well, she is kind of the the central female character driving the show itself, and David Hyde Pierce plays the the Boston detective who comes in to solve the -the behind-the-scenes murder mystery. Right. The show itself... um, was a long time in in, in birthing uh, for not uh, inconsequential reasons. Peter Stone, who wrote the original book, died during the creation of the show. Then a few years later, Fred Ebb passed away, mm-hmm. and John Kander, over about a six year period, was determined to get the show on Broadway.
2: Well, yes, it, actually, the show's been around for twenty years. They wrote it twenty years ago, but they never did any readings of it. There were people interested. But nothing ever happened. Just sat in a drawer until Scott Ellis six years ago said, let's do a reading of this. And Peter and Fred and all of us, we got together and did a reading of it. And then through that, starting from that time, um, Peter passed after we'd done like two readings and then Freddie passed. And then John Cander made that decision that he wanted to go on no matter what.
0: Do you know why it sat in a drawer for 20 years? I mean, certainly... These I, think were were all busy other, I think they were just the, busy
2: doing established artists. They are really pro- prolific writers. Uh, Fred and John met every week and wrote. I mean, they were always writing shows. So knowing them, they probably had you know shows like Chicago and other shows coming. You know, they were
0: always. So things working. just got in the way.
2: I, well, I don't know if it got in the way. It's just I think they just <laughs> were working on new things. They're you know they're always working on two things at once. These mm. guys. They they were never stopping to work. So I don't think it had anything to do. I think that was something they started working on and then just kind of fell by the way and the they moved on to other things.
0: And you were there at that very first reading. Uh-huh. Now, the one six years ago. Yes, that yeah, so was
2: Edward Hibbert and Michael McCormick and myself from this cast.
0: Uh-huh. From mm-hmm. from right then. How, obviously, there were changes with, with Peter passing away, mm-hmm. but how did, did your character evolve or are you the character that they had created right this off the character,
2: bat? Well, It's a Business was already written when this, and that song really has informed this character on so many levels about how she is and, and many of my lines are still there actually too I mean this my character was pretty well formed as was the detective Chaffee um, the idea that he was a detective would all not only solve the murder but solve the problems of the musical um, Edward Hibbert's character the director was pretty well there what, what, what changed was how these other stories other characters the the writers the Karen Ziemba and Jason Daniellis. Um, character, how they all interplay together, and who actually the murderers were, changed as well. There were things that changed. There were songs that changed, but the the crux of it being an out of town music, out of town musical in at the Colonial Theater, trying out and having their leading lady being killed on opening night—that's never changed. That's always was the crux of it. It's just the the play within the play changed, things like that changed.
0: Can you tell us what, a little of what got dropped, what we're not seeing that you recall? From well, there the was a play versions? within the
2: play that that was much different I want to say it was like Pirandello or not Pirando or something it was some odd medieval type musical it was a totally different musical now it's Robin Hood The Country Western. So that was a big huge change but um, there were characters that were dropped out uh, Christine Nielsen would, played the uh, uh, wardrobe person who was in love with the leading lady she was hysterical they dropped that part um, which, they, which I always wish they had because she was so funny um the leading lady wasn't killed in the original uh, right away like it is. And, I mean, so things like that. I mean, I, I can't really remember, to tell you the oh. truth, exactly all the things that changed, but quite a bit did.
1: Well, for our listeners, right at the beginning of the show, we see this show within the show, Robin mm-hmm. Hood, being performed in Boston. And during the curtain calls, which is in the first couple minutes of, of Curtains, uh, the leading lady is is murdered right. right in front of the audience and the whole cast and all that. And then the show goes on from there. Um, you mentioned that the show's been in development really for 20 years since they first created. How did Scott Ellis, the director, get involved six years ago?
2: Well, Scott had done the the rink with, uh, was a performer in the rink with uh-huh. uh, Fred and John. And then he did The World Goes Around with uh-huh. them. And while he was doing The World Goes Around, he asked to see all the music that like was in their musical trunk. And he saw some songs from the show that were there. And he, after years later, after we did Steel Pier, he said, you know, there was interesting songs in that show. Can we, can we read it? And that's how it happened.
1: And then how did you get involved?
2: Uh, I had done Steel Pier with uh, Fred and John and Scott. And so they called me to do that first reading.
0: We had I- done several shows with Scott even before that. The revival of Picnic, mm-hmm. Scott directed, and the company. revival of Company. Right. I was just curious as to to your working relationship. Obviously, he he likes putting you in his shows.
2: Every actor wants to be in a Scott Ellis show. He's truly one of the great, great, great directors. Um, he puts together such great casts, and he's so smart, and um, he so cares about the actors. hes I would work with him any time, and I feel lucky that I've gotten to work with him as much as I have. Mm-hmm.
1: Then uh, Scott took the, the project to Mike Ritch- Michael Ritchie out of the Amundsen in Los Angeles. Well,
2: Michael Ritchie had just gotten appo- appointed mm-hmm. as the artistic director of the Amundsen. And he called Scott, because Scott is also a good friend and has worked worked at Williamstown. And "What he said, what do you want to do here? And Scott said, well, there's this new show called Curtains. And Michael said, okay. And it was a brilliant, courageous thing for him to do, being the brand new artistic director of the of the Amundsen, to take on a brand new big, big, big musical, which he did, which was great.
1: Has the show uh, changed substantially from the Amundsen to New York?
2: We cut out like 12 minutes Mm -hmm. since then. Uh, There was some reordering of songs and uh, and just really they just tightened it up as much as they could just to really keep telling the story and not to get off. You know, so many, you know, uh, Rupert Holmes is so brilliant. He wrote so many wonderful things. And after a while, we had to cut some of them, even though, you know, you have to do that all the time. They were just fun and wonderful, but they had to be cut so we could just keep telling the story.
1: Well, there's a lot of different storylines woven throughout, and yeah. the, the central being the murder mystery, but also some romance worked in and mother-daughter exactly. conflict between your character and Bambi or Elaine, as she's called variously mm-hmm. throughout the show. Tell us a little bit about how you perceive Carmen Bernstein, the, the producer.
2: Well, like I said, I can't talk about it too much because I don't want to give away um, the, the show, but I think she is, she is fiercely protective of this show. And what looks like from the outside, I think, is just a... No holes barred, kind of tough broad who's going to do this no matter what, is, like I said earlier, fueled by a real passion to have this show not close, to keep it open at all costs. And like I said, I think she's a real theater animal. I think she really loves the theater. It comes from that. And then I can't talk about why because mm-hmm. I don't want to give no. it away.
1: No, of course not. Well, do you think Carmen Bernstein was patterned on any real life uh, people? No.
2: People always ask me this. I mean, yes, yes. In that Peter, but not nobody who is a producer today. Everybody always thinks it is, and it's not. It's not any of those women. It was he wrote, like I said, twenty years ago. This character before any of those women were even really producing. So it was a conglomeration of women that Peter had met uh, who might be in the, the producing back then, but nobody who's presently producing.
1: Kind of a stereotypical producer.
2: Yeah, I guess. I mean, although back then, I think it was not stereotypical to have a tough woman in the 50s. I mean, it was not, women weren't, uh, I think it was pretty courageous, actually, and pretty, took a special woman, not stereotypical. I don't think there were any stereotypical producers back in the 50s, women. There was only a couple. So Mm. it took a lot of guts.
0: You've had the opportunity to create roles in a number of shows on Broadway and off-Broadway. And of course central to curtains is the fact that it's a show that's out of town and it's it's working out its kinks. Does that experience of having been in a bunch of new shows and seeing how they've worked for you, did that play in at all for you in in the role in Curtains, the fictional version of a show out of town?
2: Well most of my shows did not get to work out of town. I wish they had. Like Nick and Nora did not go out of town um, Steel Pier did not go out of town They'll Thou shalt not, not out of town It's too bad because I think if they had They probably would have had a better future Because it's a great place You're away from that whole hub of New York You really feel the freedom to work and uh, so this is the first time I actually was in a show that went out of town, a musical that went out of town to work on it. Hmm.
0: But also just wherever the show is worked on, just the idea of being an environment where things are changed, things are being fixed. Did that – were, were those elements that were being brought into the show – for for verisimilitude or was it just being played for fun
2: well i mean i think the show is really based on the reality of what it's like to do an out-of-town show and what Mm -hmm. the problems are and that the problems i mean certainly in our history there have been shows where there are leading ladies who are not really holding up the show but yet they sell the tickets i mean there are truths that are based uh, that that have these kind of of uh, parallels in them for sure
1: Deborah, how did you get started in, in in showbiz? Back in school, I read an interesting uh, anecdote about how you kind of inadvertently got cast into a school play, and you didn't really understand how, how shows work and all that.
2: Well, I didn't grow up, in, uh, our family didn't go to the theater, per- mostly because we didn't have the money to. Mo- going to movies was a special treat, so I never went to the theater. I didn't know anything about the theater. I was never involved in the theater. Until I was in college, and I went to college late, so I was in my 20s. Where where did
1: you grow up? Where where were you in college? In
2: Maryland. Uh And and I went to school. You were born in
1: Ohio, did you grow up? I was born in
2: Ohio, but I didn't grow up there. I grew up in Maryland. And uh at this little school college Frostburg, which is now Frostburg State University, at the time um they were they would pay pay for your education if you would be a teacher because they needed teachers and I did that, and you had to take a speech class and the and the gentleman who taught the speech class was also ran the theater department named dr. press, and I did a little speech in speech class, and he said why don 't you try out for my play?" And I said, well, i don't, never seen a play. I don't know anything about plays. And he said, well, you should. And I did. And it was the birthday party, which to this day, I don't know what the hell it's about. So I got cast in that play. And I didn't, I didn't know anything. I didn't know what blocking meant. I didn't know any words. I was the greenest, greenest person I'd ever met. And I remember one night before the show, I said, do people do this for a living? Because I thought it was so much fun. And uh, they said, yes, yeah, so I'm going to do this. And then he told me, rightly so, that I needed more training because I probably wouldn't make it. I better go get my graduate degree. So... I did. I went to Southern Methodist University and got my MFA in acting, and then I came to New York, and then I didn't work for four years.
1: I heard that <laughs> in this first production, you were doing various movements on stage, and the director gave you directions, you know, turn on the tea here, pour the tea, right. drink the tea, that sort of thing.
2: Well, he would say, I didn't know what blocking meant. And uh-huh. blocking is, most of this audience will know, but you say a word and you do an action that goes with it. And like, for example, you know, I'm I'm going to make breakfast, and you're pouring the breakfast and then you're going to close the window I'm going to go over and close the window well I didn't know I'd make the breakfast but didn't say anything my lines or I said my line didn't make the bre- I just didn't put that together that you're supposed to do that blocking I didn't know what that
1: meant so then you did it differently the next night
2: yeah when he said come back and said let's run it I just did it all differently because I didn't know you're supposed to do it the same every night
1: I had no <laughs> idea. Right clue
2: I, like I said I was the greenest greenest greenhorn ever
1: so then a number of years later you were in New York you didn't work for those four first four yeah, years I did, t- I did
2: temping and waitressing. Couldn't get a job. Couldn't get an agent. Couldn't get my equity card.
1: Then you and a few other people put together a show that ultimately became Pump Boys and Dinettes on yes. Broadway, but it didn't start on Broadway, obviously. It started off
2: Broadway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were down uh, – we started – we did our very first performance at the Westside Arts Center, uh, the old Westside Arts. Uh, f- and our friends had to buy a beer. They could get in and, and – it became. It was, we were on at 11 o'clock at night, and uh, Marilyn Stasio wrote a little article in the Post about us, and all of a sudden it became. A late night thing to come to and by the end of that summer we people were lined up to see it and we were interviewing producers and that's when we hooked up with the Dodgers. It was their first Broadway show.
1: And not only were you a performer in it, you were also one of the writers.
0: Of
2: we all wrote Six of us who were performing it also wrote
0: it. Well, how did you all come together? Were you just a group of friends and said, let's put on an entertainment? Well,
2: I was friends with Mark Hardwick who I'd met at Southern Methodist University in Texas. He was there. And when he came to New York, he went off and did a show with Cass Morgan and Jim Wan, who were married at the time. And he said to me, you should meet Cass. You would really like her. And then I met her, and she was frustrated because she couldn't get any work. And I was, too, I was waitressing. And she said, well, let's write something for ourselves. And she was a wonderful, is, a wonderful, wonderful singer. And I was nervous about singing, and she was a little nervous about her acting. And I felt like I could do the acting. So we said, let's do something together and help each other kind of learn to sing and act together. And I said, well, I've been doing this waitressing, and these waitresses are really interesting. So we started to write this, this piece about these two sisters who ran a, a diner. And then she was married to Jim, and Jim down the hall was working on this little thing called the Pep Boys, like a bar band, and then they changed the Pump Boys. And one night they were asked to play at Manhattan Theater Club for one of their parties, and Jim said, why don't you girls come along? You can do backup and sing a couple of your songs. And then we did that that night at that party, and we just realized it felt right. And from then on we started to create the show together.
0: At what point did it... Yeah, you say you put it together, it was a party, then you're doing it late night at West Side Arts. How did it develop as a show? Did you at a certain point say we need a director? Or were you no, what happened all, really doing the, it all yourselves? Well
2: we we basically produced it and directed it and put it all together ourselves. We didn't have a director. Um, we one of us would always stand out and look and say, Well, I think that's good, maybe move over here or whatever. But we would we would just we just had a sensibility about what these people were who these people were and what they should say and like I said the Dodgers Michael David and, and Ed Strong who had never produced before came before they had g- general managed they were fresh out of Yale and still young and I came in and said we want to do the show and so we went with them and basically it was their their uh, taking care of it and bringing it down to the Colonnades Theatre Lab off, off Broadway and that's where we started with them
0: And then when it ended up on Broadway, if I remember correctly, you were in a theater that's not there anymore. Yeah, it's been The Princess.
2: It's all been turned... It was the old Latin corner been torn down it was the perfect theater for us because we had tables and chairs and people could drink and you know, it was a different most you nobody gave away was, a
0: toaster at intermission yeah. every night well, you know, a we gave away
2: uh, we gave away a, a air freshener every night oh <laughs>
0: okay but we, nobody
2: had done reviews like this really it was a new it was not always not everybody thought it was broadway bully we got some articles written about us where they <laughs> didn't think we were legit broadway Um, But the only reason we got... I mean, we got nominated for a Tony for Best Musical because at that time there were only three other musicals on Broadway, and I think they had to put us in the slot. The other three were nine... Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat and Dreamgirls and Us. <laughs> Pretty,
1: good <laughs> <company>. <laughs> Pretty good company. Pretty good company. But it's amazing—a a bunch of basically theater neophytes mm-hmm. with uh, some neophyte producers, the Dodgers, um, getting together and actually transferring a show to Broadway and becoming a success. Yes. Uh, what were What were you thinking? What were you feeling during this whole experience? Well, I, were, we, you, were, we, were you pinching yourself to see if you were awake? Well,
2: first of all, we never sat down to write a Lizard and Broadway show. Uh-huh. I think we didn't know what that is. Uh-huh. I, I think the reason it worked is because we really were writing, we're really good musicians and we're writing truth truth, the truth about these characters and we loved them so they were funny and endearing. But we weren't thinking like a lot of people who would say well this is not going to work on Broadway, you need this, you need that. We didn't think about that because we weren't writing for that. We At one point we thought we were going to get on like the back of a bus and have like beanbag chairs and tour as a band that were, happened to be characters. It just so happened that we Cross paths with the Dodgers, and we came to Off Broadway, and they treated it like it was a bar band type situation. They didn't try to make it a big something different. You know, there was a brief period we moved to Broadway where they they got a little nervous and wanted to bring in a director, but that was kind of squashed after a while. We went back to doing our own thing. So you know? even
1: when we moved to Broadway, there was still no real director. There was
2: a brief little time when we moved to Broadway. They, we thought we better have one, and then wait, somebody came in who didn't didn't really gel with us, uh-huh. and so. He left, and we went back to doing what we did. And we didn't know. We didn't know if we, when we did it that night if people would like it or not. Huh.
1: <laughs> and did uh, Broadway sages say, oh, you shouldn't do it this way? This is not the way it's done on Broadway? Well, a
2: lot of people told us, you know, it's, it'll be cute for, you know, the road or out in uh-huh. Texas, but it will never work on. Well, you got to remember, this was, country western music was not popular. Dolly Parton was just starting to be a a popular woman and we had that song The Night Dolly Part was almost mine but it was not like it is today or country western is like you know big 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 business it was still you know we couldn't get anybody to do our record album nobody wanted to record us and Willie Nelson came to see us one night and he came up on stage he loved the show and he said listen if you can't get anybody, I'll pull my recording trucks up and I'll do it myself. And mm-hmm. after that a little picture came out with the article, all of a sudden we got, we got a rec- record contract.
0: But of course the phenomenon of so many shows that break the mold even, you know, a couple of years ago people saying, oh, Avenue Q shouldn't move to Broadway. Right. People saying "Is Spring Awakening, really <laughs> Broadway <laughs> material. There's always that idea that Anything that's different isn't Broadway, right. and and it was just one more you know an early example that that anything could could work.
2: You know, people say our show is just an old-fashioned musical. Curtains, the curtains. Yeah. I mean, you get you know, you're never going to please everybody for sure. But like, there's like even that, like, well, it's just an old-fashioned musical. It's an old, you know, it's not anything so new if, or inventive.
0: If the new stuff doesn't work and the old <laughs> stuff doesn't work, where does that where do we us? go?
2: I mean, it's just great to see great theater. You know, and, and all those ones that you mentioned, Avenue Q, Spring Awakening, are all just wonderful theater.
1: Deborah, there's another show that you were involved in creating, Oil City Symphony. How did that come about?
2: Well, after we did Pump Boys, um, interestingly enough, I was on Broadway, and I still couldn't get an agent. Everybody who came to see the show and saw me thought I was a real, like, just rockabilly, rockabilly country singer. And I couldn't get anybody. to believe it. I said, well, "This is just another character. It's a character." Anyway, I was so frustrated that show closed, and I didn't have an agent, so I couldn't get any work. And then all of a sudden, there was a, a production of Pump Boys in—I uh, can't remember where it was. I want to say Minneapolis or something, some place like that. But I can't remember, but it was a—it was a, a theater in the round in a mall. And it was yet another production of Pump Boys. I went, okay, I'm going to be doing Pump Boys for the rest of my life. It's the only part I can get. I don't have an agent. So I went there with another woman who named um, Maggie LeMay, who was playing Redda at the time. And she had an agent. And on our days off, from wherever we were, I can't remember the theater, she would go back to New York and audition for other things. And I was so upset that I didn't have an agent. I couldn't audition. And one of the places I always wanted to work was the Actors Theater of Louisville, because it was a repertory company. I always wanted to work rep. So I flew myself there one time. And... Uh, walked in and said, I want to audition. They said, well, you can't do that. You have to have an agent. So I said, I don't have an agent. I've, I have a tip. I have to two hours. I have to fly back, do my show. I just came in. Can I at least do my piece for somebody? And they said, well, John Jury's not here. And I said, can I see his assistant? and I talked to the assistant, and I auditioned for her. And she said, listen, we just don't take people this way. You've got to have an agent. I said, well, I don't have one. But if anything comes up you think I'm right for, I would love to come and audition. And then uh tragically this wonderful actress named Susan Kingsley who worked at the Actors Theatre of Louisville was killed in a car accident and there was a play that Bill Master Simone had written for her that um, John Joy was going to direct for the humane uh, for the human uh festival so he had to come to New York to uh, sadly because he was groping with his own misery about her death uh, Audition women and as he was leaving his assistant said you might want to see this woman Deborah Monk so I auditioned I got the part so I went to Actress Theater of Louisville for three years after Pump Boys and did nothing but new plays had the opportunity to really grow as an actress and John Jury became a very good friend and, and was a wonderful director and taught me a lot After three years, I thought, you know, I really better get back to New York, because you could stay here forever and just do wonderful parts, but I got to go back. Went back, and the first week I was back, my friend Mark Hardwick, who was in Pump Boys, called me and said, he and his friend Mike Craver were playing this silly music from uh, all these songs from Lawrence Welk, and I play the drums. They said, can we come over and you can play the drums with us? I said, okay. So they came over. Well, we laughed so hard playing all these silly songs, the, the theme from Exodus and all this stuff that I was asked then a week later to sing at a uh, a benefit and I said well can I just Sing something from this little band. So we did the theme from Exodus, and it went over like people were crying. They were laughing so hard, and there began the roots of Oil City. And as we were, I remember the first night we were actually opening at the Circle in Square downtown, and we were doing the Hokey Pokey. I was leading the audience the Hokey Pokey. I'm seeing the critics put their you know hat making I thought, oh well, my, career's over. I went out for three years to try to do you know good play So I go. And now I'm back. Uh, Leading the hokey, hokey Leading the hokey pokey But they loved it. And by the way, I got my agent when I was in uh, Actors Theatre of Louisville. That's where I found my agent. I didn't get it when I was on Broadway.
0: Well, I've got to ask, because you made an interesting comment. I very rarely run across women who say they play the drums. Where did you pick up playing the drums?
2: I learned, like, a basic rock and roll beat when I was in high school from my girlfriend's brother. And it was something I always loved. And I always could do it every time I sat down the drums. And then when um, we were doing Pump Boys... I started studying. I study here in New York, huh. and I I loved it. And I played. A, then I played in Oil City Symphony. I played a little bit in Thou Shalt Not with Harry. Let me play a little bit during that. I've played on film a couple times. Yeah. Huh.
0: Well, how did you transition in New York? Because you know you certainly had Pump Boys, which gave people a certain idea of what you did. And then, if frankly, you say your next major New York experience was Oil City Symphony you did get an agent from Louisville the transition of getting people to see you is obviously more than this very funny country singer um, right what did, what did that take and where where was the real break in New York for you in terms of starting to be seen as as having more variety to what you do
2: well I think um, my real break came when we did a Prelude to a Kiss on Broadway and that was a couple of years later the original um, I, mean, I did production. my first yeah. play a Broadway play was I was all of a sudden legitimized in some way. Like Hmm. all of a sudden casting directors and people felt, oh, she can talk and walk, and this is not just a country-western fluke. Although so many people I meet still, they really only remember Pump Boys. It's interesting. That's their memory. Uh
0: Uh-huh because i think now you know with so many musicals since and and so many dramatic roles as well i think there are also generations of fans who don't don't know pump boys necessarily right. so right. so that question i mean you've you've made a remarkable transition that people see you in so many different lights after having that period where you you really thought you might just be doing pump boys and yeah. leaving the hokey pokey for the rest which of your life which i wasn't
2: life. sad about because i love the shows but i just always wanted to do more you know, But we I've been very lucky to do the variety of things that I do. Very lucky.
0: Well, you touched upon it glancingly, but your first big conventional Broadway musical was Nick and Nora, mm-hmm. which, which had its challenges. But what was the experience for you on Nick and Nora?
2: It was – the first part of it was like a dream come true to be in that rehearsal hall with Arthur Lawrence, Richard Boltby, Charles Strauss – Joanna Gleason, Christine Christine, Prince, um, oh, excuse me, Faith Prince, you know. I mean, it was just it was Barry Boswick. Uh, I mean, just an amazing group of wonderfully talented people. And I, we had so much fun, those rehearsal halls. I mean, we really did. It was really a great family and great fun. And um, when it moved to Broadway, it, it never was able to... To do the things like we did out of town with curtains, the kind of things time you need to really be uh, have time to work on something, it it didn't wasn't able to make that the changes um, that it needed. And there was there was problems I think with people getting along and all that stuff that happened. And there were it. some
0: financing problems with the show there at the same some, time. Yeah, there
2: was. I I don't know about the financing part of it. I just know they were like in, there were like there people not getting along, and mm-hmm. it just never really and never. Never improved, and never got better. It never solved the problems that it had to solve.
1: Hmm. So it was a trouble show. It didn't really have a chance to to work out the bugs. Yeah,
2: basically. I think so, or maybe the, it just wasn't in this situation with this group of people, not work out. But it was. So I, I always look at it as very fondly as a great experience, and then as the kind of a sad experience too.
0: And I don't have the chronology quite right, but either just before that or just after would have been Assassins,
2: Redwood Curtain. Oh, was right after that.
0: Mm-hmm. Because
2: Um, I know that because uh, when we did the workshop of Nick and Nora, Arthur Lawrence called me and offered me, we said, we're going to move to Broadway with Nick and Nora. A week before, Lanford Wilson had sent me the play, Redwood Curtain, with a note saying, I've written this play for you. It may be a piece of shit. Let me know what you think. Okay. And it was, of course, this gorgeous play. He had seen me and do readings down at the Circle Rep and had written this part for me. So Arthur calls me. And Arthur is a very, you know, strong presence. I love him dearly. But he sometimes scares me. And I said, he said, well, we're all set for Broadway. And I said, well, I just, I have a play. He said, is it a good play? I said, yeah. And he said, all right, open Nick and Nora and I'll let, I'll let you out, which was unheard of. So that's why I remember the chronology, because huh. I, he said, as long as you open my show for me, I will let you out to do the play. And, of course, Nick and Nora closed, so I didn't, it didn't become an issue. And then I went off to do Rebel Curtain, and we did it in oh, – I forget where we did it first. We did it in Pennsylvania and Seattle and different places, and then brought it into Broadway. uh
1: uh-huh. Well, yeah. who, who was the character that you played, Geneva? Who, wh- what was this By woman By the way, about?
2: Assassins was before Nick and Mark. That's what I, right. I, I didn't, so, so we'll, like, we'll come was, back
1: yeah, to Assassins, Assassins but let's, let's yeah. talk about, about Redwood Curtain. Tell us about Geneva.
2: Oh, great, great, broad. Uh, oh. Another woman who seemingly is just, you know, a, a tough and, and uh, can be nasty. But again, she's fighting for the Redwood Curtain forest, which was being... There's this thing called clear-cutting. Well, they'll just clear-cut a piece. And, you know, it takes years and years and years and years and years, as we all know, to get a redwood forest. To go. So they're, they're always... She was a champion of this careful cutting where you cut only what you need, and you make sure there's always growth, and the new growth can catch up with it. And there there was a corporation was going to take over the, and, and clear-cut. At the same time, the other issue was uh, her um, brother-in-law had died in Vietnam, and... Uh, and had adopted uh this young girl who was always who who um was looking for her real father and it was a it was a combination of things about fighting for this forest and also for what's happened with our vets who thousands and thousands of them were living up in the um up in that area which was might still be true to this day so it was a very interesting piece she was incredibly funny she was lanford wilson if you know lanford wilson lanford wilson is a you know, bitingly, satirically funny, he, gorgeous man with this huge heart, with this acid wit, you know. And she was like, she always said she was, she was always Lanford. I always. I always
0: ask this when people say a play or a musical was written for them. Did you ever get the chance to talk to Lanford and say, why did you see me in this? Why, why me for this role?
2: I don't know if I ever asked him, but I'll never forget one day he took me by the arm and Took me over to 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 Marshall Mason, who directed. And said, "This is the girl." I never asked him. I you you know, it's a very good question. I never asked him. I, he must have seen something in the the stuff, that the readings that I did. I don't know. I never asked him. It's a good question.
1: Well, you describe Geneva as a tough broad. You describe Carmen Bernstein in pretty mm-hmm. much the same way. Why do you think you get cast as these women?
2: I I you know once you. Eat, once you do a couple of these, they know you can do that, so uh-huh. they don't have to worry about it. You know, I've gotten to do a couple other things, too, which are like A Wilderness, which was totally different type of character, and some other characters that, that aren't quite like that. But uh, I love playing them. They're fun.
1: But before you were cast, did you think you could play these roles? Did you Do you have anything in you that you know, says, I'm an hey, I'm a tough
2: <laughs> I'm an, I feel like I can play all kinds of things. Uh-huh. I was trained to do all of it, you know, to do Shakespeare and restoration comedy and to play drama and to play comedy I mean I was really that was what we were trained and I, like I said I wanted to do uh, I always wanted to do um, repertory theater because one night you get to be the buffoon the next night you get to be the mute I mean you know it's like it was so great I mean I was trained to be able to play
1: mm. anything we alluded briefly to Assassins, which was the... You were in the original off-Broadway yes. version of Assassin, 1991. Which was before 91. Nick and Nora. Right. right, yeah, yeah. You played uh, Sarah Jane Moore, one mm-hmm. of the would-be presidential assassins. Mm-hmm. Who was this woman that you played? Sarah she was Jane the
2: Moore. one who was uh, trying to shoot... Uh, oh, his name just one of my... Mm-hmm. Gerald Ford. Ford. Gerald Ford's one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she was a housewife who just, you know, got... Bless her heart, just got... just She just kind of nuts, you know, kind of went a little crazy and uh, missed him, I think. I can't remember all the details of it, but, uh, you know, just kind of a sad... Again, she was nothing like Carmen Bernstein, the total opposite, kind of a sad, middle-aged housewife who was sweet and and, and kind of lost. She was a great character, but the total opposite of these other kind of wisecracking gals.
1: How did you get that role? I auditioned. Just an open audition? Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Then you got to work with Steven Sondheim. I
2: did, and Jerry Sachs and uh, and then that incredible cast.
0: That's a production that is now one of those fabled shows that theater fans, you know, if, if someone says they saw it, they, you know, some other people will gather around and say, oh, my God, you saw that Assassin's, what was it like? Also, one of the past wisdoms about that show is that because of the political environment at the time, that as much as people admired the show, it wasn't able to go on did you have a sense of how the show was being received by the the regular audiences not by by critics or the theater business people but but how did it play they in, were leaving in those days no really
2: oh no no they were that was not a hit they would leave in the middle of the show no they were leaving they hmm. were walking out they were upset there was one time when the Stephen Sondheim was talking. They had a talk back and we all sat in the audience, and these people all accused him of uh, writing a show about wanting to kill a president. And he had tears in his eyes. He said, if that's what you got from this show, then I have failed. Hmm. It was awful. No, we we were, like, hated. There were not – people were walking out. It was not considered a success. And it was hard. We all just kind of had to band together every night, knowing that people were walking out leaving it.
1: Why do you think there was? Was it the political atmosphere? They felt that
2: it was – well, it was the beginning of the Gulf War, I Uh believe, and uh, people thought – that's what they thought. They thought the gun song was all about – he wrote a song about wanting to shoot people, while the gun song, I think, is one of the greatest songs about uh, anti-gun that I've ever heard. But uh, that's not how it was perceived.
0: Did you have the opportunity to see the show when it was revived a few years ago by Roundabout – Sitting outside of it, did you see the show? And obviously, with a distance of time, did you see the show in a different way? Did you see things in it that you may not have seen in it in the production that you were in?
2: I still, I mean, I think as far as the music, I think it was just as powerful as I remembered it would be. Uh, just as powerful, and I was just thankful that the atmosphere allowed it to be done, and that a lot of people got to come see it because I think it 's a really great piece, a beautiful piece and I was glad for stephen that that people a lot a huge group of people could come and see this production. <laughs>
1: You worked in another Steven Sondheim show a few years after that, in 1995. You played the role of Joanne and Company, mm-hmm. the role that was originated by Elaine Stritch. Mm-hmm. Was that daunting filling those you shoes? Know, it was <laughs> terrifying. It must have been. It was
2: very scary. I, mean, I can't tell you how many people came up to me and said, "I saw the original, so I forgive me, but I won't be coming to see you do this." I said, "Okay, I don't know how to answer that," mm-hmm. but they, there was this ver- those people who saw that protected it in a way where they just wouldn't even allow themselves to come see this. And I, I, you know, I don't care. I, I really didn't care. But people had to tell me that all the time, which I thought was very odd. But yes, it was daunting. It was very daunting. It was, it's daunting to sing that song, no matter who sang it before. But, once again, we had this great director, uh, Scott Ellison. we had Rob Marshall. We had the greatest cast, and it was a, another one of those wonderful, wonderful... And we had Stephen Sondheim there, championing all of us, Never, not once comparing us in, in, in any way or any time to the original production. He was so proud of that production and so happy for it. So it was a great, great experience. And, yes, there was always that thought that Elaine was there, but... She was always, she's, Elaine has always been supportive of me, always. She's been incredibly dear and sweet and supportive of me, always.
1: So how did you get beyond that image of her doing it 25 years earlier? How well, did you I make never, the part your own?
2: I never saw her do it. Uh-huh. I never heard her do it. I never looked at the tape. I, I don't know what that is. Uh, so I just, just proceeded like an actress would with a new role just worked on it like I do everything else.
1: You just discover the character for yourself. and Yeah. The and I
2: had a director and, a, and I had Stephen and I had our musical director and I had our, our collaborator and I had those other people working with and we created it together.
0: That's an amazing freedom, though, that you didn't have any of the preconceived notions, certainly when you take on a role that, was certainly, for some people, indelibly created by one performer, and elements of it, frankly, the the documentary about the recording of the cast album have placed certain thoughts in people's minds, that you were able to go to it completely open, and maybe there were audience members coming with their own preconceptions, but you were... You well, I couldn't. I
2: couldn't do that. Yeah. Otherwise, you can't do it. So I just chose not to look at any of those things and just to try to do it my own with with the con- concept that all these people together, not just me, right. is it, but the whole collaboration became our own show.
0: Right. Of course, we should point out for our listeners that when you did that revival, that was the first Broadway revival of right. company. It had not been on Broadway since the original production right. some some twenty plus years earlier. So, you know, now when we get to the revival that occurred last year, they were already the second revival. Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is, is Barbara Walsh probably got a lot of those same questions.
2: Yeah. And I'm sure anytime anybody does anything like uh, Becky Baker, who's an incredible, incredible actress doing my, the part that I originated in Assassin's. I mean, it's going to happen. But when I saw Becky, I was so proud of her she did it. Great. That was her. That was her doing that part. You know, and I think all the really good actors do that. They make the parts their own. You can't possibly try. I mean, I just saw Patty... Uh, Patty, um, Pone do uh, the most incredible gypsy of my life the other night and I love Tyne I love Bernadette I mean that's what's great about these roles they're there to rediscover and and to 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 work on and everybody brings their own thing to
0: them the one difference for you in a role that you created is have you had the occasion, I imagine you must have over the years, to see other people do Pump Boys? Not yes, just I a have. role you created, mm-hmm. but a role you wrote based yeah. in part on your experience as a waitress. Yeah, what's that, what's that like when you go see people? It's
2: fun. You know, I mean, it's fun. Sometimes they're not always good productions, and that's always, you know, that's a, it's a delicate little show that doesn't need much. It needs people singing and telling the truth, good musicianship, and a sense of. Uh, Sense of uh, uh, you know, a sense of humor. Mm. When they try to do too much with it and make it into something, it doesn't work as well. And sometimes I've seen those productions where they feel like they have to do production values, and it really is make a, it Broadway. They really have to sing
0: mm. uh,
2: very simply. It's so a it's you know, country western. That's what the heart of country western is is just telling a story through a song. So it's frustrating sometimes to see these productions when they try to do so much. You want to say. Oh, honey, just sing the song. Just stand there and <laughs> sing it. You sound beautiful. You look beautiful. Just sing it. But it's hard. Mm. So that's one thing I say. But I got to go to London and see the London production. They did a production in London. That Pump was great. Boys
0: in London. Mm-hmm. How, did, how did that go over? It went
2: great. It was at the Piccadilly, and they ran for quite a while there. They got an Olivier nomination. Huh. Yeah. Mm.
1: We've well, been in uh, yeah. several Candor and Ebb shows, currently Curtains, of course, but of course also uh, Steel Pier and Chicago. Mm-hmm. How did you get into Steel Pier?
2: I auditioned. I had worked with Scott Scott Ellis, Scott the director. Ellis, the director, and uh, in um, Picnic, I guess, uh-huh. and Company, I think, by that time. And so, I auditioned for Fred and John, who did not know me, and then they approved, and then I got in.
1: So you had to get them to approve. Oh yeah. Mm.
2: Well, they. I I think they approve when they're doing their shows. They all they, they approve all that smartly so because mm-hmm. Fred and John are two. Freddie was and John is two of the smartest men I've ever met, and two of the nicest men I've ever met. So, you know, they really know from where their material, how it's going to, you know, how it's going to work. So, you want them there. Actually, you want them there. Mm-hmm. You want their, you want them to want to work with these people because they're they're truly. It's like, but then it becomes like a master class working with those two.
1: Uh, is is that common that the composer and lyricist have? approval rates over over the cash. Well, I
2: think Sondheim was, I believe uh, he was at the auditions uh, for Assassins and I, I think if they're alive and they're interested mm-hmm. they probably want to be. If it's a Broadway, we're talking to Broadway shows, I mean, I think it's a lot at risk here. A lot of money, a lot of, so I mean, I don't know if they're they're involved with every little production that goes out but, when it's a big Broadway show and there's millions of dollars.
1: (laughs) I think they are there. So that's that's a pretty common thing no matter who the composer is. I'm
2: assuming. Uh I don't know. Those shows that I've been involved with, they've been there and I think you want them there unless, you know, I mean, I would think you'd want them there.
0: Since you've had the opportunity to work with with Kander and Ebb on two shows, you know, you're saying what great guys they were and and are. Um, What has been the experience of working with them what have you learned from working with them on two different new shows because certainly as great writing teams they are they are in the pantheon now
2: you know these guys worked every week every week they were sitting in Fred's kitchen working every week and they had they have a work ethic that is Sublime. They have fun doing it, but they really work at their craft. They they learned under Mr. Abbott, as they always call him Mr. Abbott. So I call him Mr. Abbott, even though I never knew him. But he was a, a taskmaster. They work with Bob Fosse. You know, they they were told go write a new song, and they and most writers who might be shaking in their boots goes, oh my god, they would get in the elevator and be so excited. Oh, good, we get to go write another song. I mean, that they loved working. They loved it. They were also two of the brightest men I've ever met. I mean, they were so learned as far as politics and, and, and history, and you know, they. I mean, you, well, look at, you know, they can't write cabaret unless you you know you're somebody who who is who is has a whole knowledge of of the world, which they did. Um, they were incredibly funny, heartfelt people. So everything they did. Had a sense of fun, but it was also hard work. And that's what I learned from them. That you go into rehearsal and you are prepared and you work hard and you do everything you can do, but you also have fun doing it. And that's not always easy. Either you're having too much fun and you're not getting the work done, or you're so strict and re- that's hard. With them, it was they found that way to come together and do their work and enjoy it. And they, they also taught me about having lives outside the theater, you know, that that it's about their friends and their family. And I, mean, I learned a lot from them. As far as actually working on songs, you know, Fred Ebb, when they would come in and, and do a new musical, they'd always sing the score themselves first. It was just Fred, it was just John at the piano, and they would, they would, um, some, John would sing some songs and Fred would sing the other. Fred would always sing the kind of character songs, like he sang Everybody's Girl. He would sing It's a Business. You know, John would sing the more lyrical songs. I heard Fred Ebb sing It's, uh, sing um, Everybody's Girl, and I realized I'm going to do everything he just did. I'm not going to try to, I'm not going to try to change this. It was brilliant. His phrasing, he's a master at phrasing. I mean, even, um, uh, you know, uh, Liza Minnelli will tell you that she learned everything from Freddie, and so when you have somebody like that, a master at phrasing, at you know, uh, he, he was how how not to do something, how to do something, you just take all of it in and try to to apply it. But I took everything he did every time I saw him. Hmm. And I would willingly, if he would say, try it like this, I would do it like that. I wouldn't even question it. That's the thing about those two men. I never question it. When they tell me to try something, I just try it. They're hmm. too smart. They're too good. And look at their history. Hmm. So.
1: so shows like Cabaret in Chicago, even curtains were created in Fred Ebb's kitchen.
2: Well, <laughs> I think so. A, p- really? p- a big part of them were, yeah. they had, Fred had this big table in there, and they would sit there and, and work.
1: <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I, I read somewhere that um, when you were first doing "It's a Business" and curtains, that you were starting it kind of soft and I like building, and John Candace gave you a different direction on it.
2: Well, they, I, you know, because it's a song that doesn't have any core. You know, it just has verse after verse after verse. Right. I kept thinking, and it goes on for a long time. Mm-hmm. That I may should start off maybe a little softer here, and they both came running over to me, not just John, but Fred, and said, "There is nothing." Um, Oh, what was the word they used? Uh, oh, I can't think of the word, the exact word. But there soft or subtle. There's subtle. nothing subtle, subtle about. It. There's nothing subtle about this woman or this song. There's nothing, and that was such a great, you know, a great note because that informed not only the song but the whole character. Mm-hmm. She's not subtle. She says what she means, and she and it's not. It's not to be sentimental or cutesy pie. It really is just you know. And Fred Ebb would sit there. And I would sing that song, and he would laugh till tears were coming down his <laughs> every time I sang it.
1: It's interesting. I'm kind of inferring that, in the creative process, they're thinking not only as songwriters, but also as directors. In other words, they're seeing the character in, 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 in full development, not just the singer singing the song, well, but know, the actual character. They're
2: great coaches. Uh-huh. You know, and Fred and John certainly are, are great coaches. They know, they know the business of singing a song. They know the business of phrasing a song. And I've been with Fred and, and John uh, when they have done master classes with kids, and it's, they, they treat those kids, those high school kids or college kids, the same way they do us, with the same integrity, with the same sense of fun and a, a way to approach a song. And they're just mm-hmm. great.
0: Before we wrap up, I want to ask about one other of your Broadway musicals. You mentioned very quickly that you even managed to play the drums on stage in in Thou Shalt Not, Mm -hmm. which is a show that that did not have uh, the longest of runs. Can you just talk a little about that show, which which seems like such an interesting show uh, that a lot of us didn't get to see?
2: I was thrilled to be asked. Uh, Susan Stroman, Harry Connick, Tommy Thompson... And Lincoln Center, so all my favorite people and places to work. It was based on uh, Therese Raquine, and, and then but set in the uh, in New Orleans. And uh, a couple things happened. You know, it's it's a dark tale. It's not a uh, a fun fun tale. And also, in the middle of our tech, nine eleven happened. So you know, we were on Broadway, and I'll never forget that day. We didn't know if there was ever going to be a Broadway or anything. It was a very scary time and we didn't know I just didn't well you all it was just it was a terrible, terrible time. But one thing people did not want to go see during that time was a dark tale about death and sickness. They wanted to see the producers, they wanted to see that's why Assassins was supposed to start happening then and they put they postponed it wisely so.
0: The roundabout revival. Yeah, it right. was supposed yeah. to be
2: happening at that time and they wisely said this is not a good time mm-hmm. and they pulled it. So, you know, this show was not a show that people wanted to go see.
0: I'm curious, having just talked so eloquently about the experience of working with veterans like candor and Ebb, this was in, you were working on a new show by a composer who was new to Broadway, specifically Harry Connick and I'm just wondering about what what that experience was. He was great. You, you
2: saw him, a man who only wrote songs for himself to sing for the first time, writing songs for other people to sing. And as he got more and more comfortable with us and comfortable with himself and allowing these songs to give them up to us, it, he became another great, great coach uh, or person who had incredible sensibility about a song. You know, when you sing the blues and stuff, it's all about what you don't do. It's letting it all go. And for Broadway singers, you know, you're just always punching those things. And it was about really feeling it soulfully. And uh, he cast us all, and everybody in that cast was soulful to begin with, but we just needed a cup, some nudging from him to, to go all the way. But he was, in a, he was the most brilliant um, musician. He would sit at his computer... With the all, you could see the score with the trombones, trumpets, and, and piano, blah, 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 all the night. And he would sit there like this and be scoring it in his head that fast. I mean, he's like a, you know, genius, genius. Mm. And he, had his, he had his cap back with baseball cap and a man beater t-shirt just on And I said, what are you doing? He said, oh, hey, Deb, I'm just scoring the thing and like that. And all of a sudden it, you realize this man's a genius. He's a genius. He was also a dear, sweet wonderful funny 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 guy and it was thrilling to work with him
1: also pretty good looking Gorgeous. (laughs) (laughs) And on that note, Deborah (laughs) Monk currently appearing eight times a week as uh, Carmen Bernstein in uh, Curtains at the Al Theater. Eight times a week.
0: (laughs) But loving it.
2: Loving it.
1: Okay. Thanks so much for being with us, Deborah, on Downstage
0: Center. (laughs) Thanks, Deborah. (laughs) Thanks. For For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite
1: Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you.
0: The American Theater Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.